Hello, hello, and thank you for joining me for another episode of Deep Dive Into Practice. Today, I'm going to be talking about the myth of happiness because there's this belief that we should all be happy. And this is one of those shared delusion beliefs that I talked about in previous episodes where I say we kind of all get sucked into the shared delusion. But you know, when we're on this pursuit of happiness, we're always thinking that we have to do things to make us happy. And we always have to feel like we're happy. And if we don't reach the state of happiness, we just shame all over ourselves because we assume then there's something wrong with us. And there's actually models of goal pursuit. So for example, where we believe valuing happiness and, and kind of that goal pursuit of reaching happiness should lead to more happiness. And there's lots of books and I'm gonna be talking about that too, but it's really perpetuated in movies and social media where we should be happy. And especially for our kids and, and our teens who soak up so many messages about being perfect and being happy. And there's this constant comparison in every aspect of life to pressure to, to live up to these unrealistic expectations, whether it's to be, you know, have the perfect body, to have the perfect boyfriend, to have the perfect life, to do all of these things. And I've seen teens waste hours trying to get the perfect pose with a kitten and then they're fighting with each other, but it's just, I need to get the good picture to put it up, right? And then they're posting this false message to fit in and to avoid rejection because they need to look like they're so happy and so beautiful and super, so perfect. And then what we do is we create this vicious cycle of, of misery where we're wasting away our precious lives, scrolling social media, and especially our kids and teenagers, and they're seeing how much happier everybody else is. And we believe that everybody else has got it all, which can be really hard. And, and a lot of kids do think, you know, almost always, I'll ask kiddos, about their happiness scale. So where are you on a scale of one to 10, where 10 is the happiest and one is the saddest. And most of the time kids rate their happiness quite low, you know, like a one or a two, maybe a three. But then I ask them, okay, so you're about a two or a three on your scale of happiness, right? 10 being so happy, my cheeks hurt, I'm smiling all the time. One being, I don't even know what happiness means. You're about a two or a three. Where do you think everybody else your age is? And I ask this of adults too, but, but almost always, and especially my kids and teenagers, but adults too, they always say that everybody else feels happier. So they believe they're the only sad kid or sad teenager and everybody else is happy. And then we get into all the reasons why they think, you know, you know, that they're not as happy as everybody else, but they're caught in this whole what's wrong with me because I can never be happy and it becomes this monologue. And then there's these ongoing questions. Why, why can't I just get over it? Why can't I be happy like everybody else? Why is everything so hard for me? Why can't I be happy? And that's why the self-help industry is this billion dollar industry in this pursuit to be happy, but our brain isn't set up that way. And when it comes to happiness, there's this paradoxical effect, meaning the more we want and the harder we push for happiness, the worse off we are because happiness becomes unattainable. And then we feel even worse and it's this vicious cycle. And, and, you know, we're always thinking the grass is greener on the other side. If I just got the job, if I just lost 20 pounds, if I just do this, if I just bah, 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 and on and on it goes, and it's just unattainable. And over the years, researchers, they really demonstrated this theme, this vicious cycle of, of how we think things should be and trying to pursue how we think things should be, the shared delusion, and it's actually making it worse for ourselves. So for example, I think it's schooler, and I might get 
the name wrong, so I apologize. Um, Schooler and, and colleagues found that there were these participants. So when they were told to try to make themselves feel as happy as possible, you know, and so they're listening to music and they had to try to make themselves feel happy as possible. They reported feeling less positive news than people who weren't given any instructions at all. So by trying to be happy, they felt worse off. And other researchers have also found that valuing happiness led to less happiness. And when they tried to induce happiness, so let's go watch some happy movie clips or ha happy TV shows and try to make your ha yourself happy, they were feeling worse. So researchers have really concluded that by pushing for this happiness, people are just setting themselves up for disappointment in their level of happiness, and then they feel less happy. And so their findings, they really suggest that encouraging mindsets that maximize happiness, which is the goal of a lot of self-help books out there and a lot of things that parents pick up that sound so beautiful, like growth mindset, it sounds so fantastic and I wanna do this. It's actually counterproductive because it's just making people vulnerable to the paradoxical effects. Here's a great example. Stress is a very good example. So we've heard over and over and over about how bad stress is for the body, right? And, and for the mind and it's, it's gonna kill us. And my husband's sure that I'm gonna die of a stroke, but what he doesn't know is that I know is how we think about stress. So we hear all of these messages and it's promoted that we're gonna have, you know, when we're stressed, we have this increased cortisol and that's gonna lead to a lowered immune system and it's gonna lead to burnout and depression and heart disease. All of these things are gonna happen. But here's the thing, old research. So it was 98, I think, end of the 90s. Um, Keller and colleagues, they went and did one of the biggest studies looking at stress and the perception of stress. And they asked like 30,000 adults in the United States how much stress they experienced in the past year. And they were asked if they thought the stress was harming their health. And then they did a follow-up eight years later and, and they said, yes. So, so those people who had higher levels of stress did in fact, have increased risk of premature death by 43%. But here's the catch. It was only for people who believed that their stress was harming their health. So those who reported high levels of stress, but they didn't believe the stress was harmful for their health, had the lowest risk of death compared to anyone else in the study, even the people with, who only had small amounts of stress. So it wasn't that the stress is bad, it's the belief that the stress is bad. And so we, researchers have found similar things over the years and that, you know, being able to accept and how we think about things is a key piece of promoting successful stress management. It's the same thing, you know, when COVID was coming, there was this huge uh, media uh, explosion on how this huge mental health crisis was coming. But it was the minute that the media put out there that this mental cri health crisis is coming, that the mental health crisis so it's all about how we talk about things and how we hear about things. It's so impactful and so influential. So we need to be careful of the words that we're saying to our kiddos and teens that we're, that we're working with. So in our pursuit of happiness, we're hearing all sorts of things about changing our thoughts. You know, one way we're encouraged is through positive affirmations. Right Over the past two decades, there's been so much research on the concept of self-perception. We're hearing the popular media, you know, the books that sound so beautiful, the secret, just think it and believe it and it will come true, right? But, but, but when we look at the research, the research shows us that positive affirmations, it only makes us sadder. 
if it doesn't fit with our self-concept. So for example, this is what they would do. They would have people go and, and do those positive affirmations. I am lovable. I am brave. I am worthy. I am strong, whatever it is. I'm courageous. And then they measured those people um, you know, in relation to their mood and how they felt about themselves. And here's the thing, the people who are in the low self-esteem group, the ones who probably needed those positive affirmations the most, they felt worse after saying those positive affirmations. The high self-esteemers felt a little bit better, but it wasn't clinically significant. It really didn't make a difference. So, you know, if we think about why adults, you know, when they praise a child and a child, we see them freak out, you know, if we're praising them, it's because they're perceiving that feedback as overly positive. It doesn't fit with who I believe I am or that I'm worthy of. And so then we feel worse because we feel like we're even further away of, wow, that's what they think of me. This is what I think of myself. And I'm feeling even worse now because there's such a huge discrepancy. So then what they did is they had people list both negative and positive thoughts about themselves. So those with the low self-esteem, they were in a better mood because they could have those negative thoughts as well. They're not just focusing on the positive. And so it was a more balanced view. And then they felt, you know, a little bit better. So, you know, if we do have people or kiddos and teens who don't feel like they're very interesting or they don't feel like they're very lovable, they just simply can't believe those positive affirmations, right? And so that's only strengthening their own initial sort of negative view of themselves. And so same thing too, if we're trying to reassure our anxious brain that nothing bad's gonna happen, nothing bad's gonna happen, nothing bad's gonna happen, it does very little to affect that underlying belief that if something did happen, it would be completely terrible. So we need to be careful when we're giving those reassurances and nothing bad's gonna happen, right? So. When we look at this, there's even something to, to think about and, and to be said about optimists and pessimists. So we always think, you know, we should just be optimistic. Look for the silver lining. Why do you always have to be a bummer all the time and, and always complain about everything? It's always such a bummer. And I know parents are bringing their kids all the time because, you know, we could go to Disneyland. Well, for some of you, that might be in your backyard. But for us, that's a huge thing. We could go to Disneyland and they're like, eh, it was okay. Um, maybe there's a protective factor here we got to look at because we do see optimists usually fall further and harder when bad things happen because they're not prepared compared to pessimists who expect the worst to happen anyways. And then they realize, hey, it wasn't actually that bad after all. So there is that protective factor here. And Viktor Frankl, who's huge in psychology, he wrote about this from his experience surviving the Nazi death camps. And, and it was the optimists who died first because they were always like, okay, today's the day, today's the day, today's the day, today's the day. And, and then when the realization hit that the day's not coming, they fell. And, and ultimately died. Whereas the people who are pessimists, they're just kind of stuck in it. They're, they can't get worse than this, right? And so there is a piece. I'm not saying that we should all be Debbie Downers, but there's something here that we really need to think about. So it's not that we can't feel happiness, not at all. Of course we can, but when we push for happiness and when we believe we should be happy and all the time, that's where we get into a trap. It's just like, you know, those Chinese finger traps. The more we try to pull away from sadness, or you know, pushing towards happiness, the more we're gonna get trapped, especially in that. Or whenever, you know, we've got this ironic processing in the brain, whenever I say, don't think of a white bear, whatever you do, don't think of a white bear. Of course, our mind is gonna go directly to that bear because of the ironic processing, but our brain's like, oh, white bear, that must be really important. 
you know, my person doesn't want me to think of it. it must be really important. Something else to think about. Our brains are not designed for us to be happy. Our brain is very powerful and there's a lot that our brain can do, but there's no particular brain pattern for happiness. Our brain, if you think about it, it was built to survive. The amygdala, which is kind of that watchdog of the brain, that's what a lot of children learn in school that the, that the amygdala does. It's looking out for danger to keep us safe. It's the only part of the brain that's fully developed when babies are born because it's built for us to survive. Our brain is built to survive. Happiness doesn't help us survive. It lets us, you know, our back gets down and now we're playing and now we get eaten right? Depression, it's adaptive. It's a very helpful emotion because it helps us remove ourselves from risky situations and hopeless situations because we're just going to hide in bed. So there's no point going out there where we're not going to win anyway. So I'm just going to stay in bed. It's very adaptive. It's very self-protective. Happiness, we get eaten, right? Because we're letting our guards down. We're going out there. We're taking risks. So that's why we, you know, when we were looking at this, we're trying to value happiness and we're trying to seek it out. And the more we're doing it without realizing our brain's not set up for that. That's why we have to work so hard. I love the analogy of gardeners. I live in a cul-de-sac where, you know, people are retired, really enjoy their garden. So they're out every day gardening, covering up their plants. If there's going to be a frost, they're picking out weeds, making sure that there's enough sunlight, you know, everything's planted where there's going to be shade or sun, depending on what the needs of the plant are. They're pulling out the weeds. I don't have time for planting. I've tried. I've spent probably thousands of dollars trying to do gardening and everything ultimately dies. So I'm just like, whatever, it's going to be what it's going to be. And I will have weeds at the end of the summer that are taller than me. I don't need to do nothing. And actually some of them are quite nice. They, they start blossoming like little flowers. Some of them, it's actually, I'm like, wow, I should just not garden. I don't need to do anything. And it's kind of like that with happiness, right? We don't have to do anything and the weeds will grow. That's happy, um, sadness, that's anxiety and stress. We need to do nothing and it's there. Of course it is, it's adaptive, it keeps us safe. To be happy, it takes work. Every day we have to do a little bit. And that's kind of what we need to think about. We, we can't just be happy because our brain just isn't happy. And so when we're trying to seek it out and trying to have that outcome of happiness, we're gonna feel disappointed. So the beauty of this, it's not to be like, oh, well, I may as well just be depressed. No, we can work at it for sure. But the beauty of it is to know there's nothing wrong with us. We are human. Of course you're feeling anxious, but that makes sense, right? Of course you're feeling sad about that. That makes sense. Your brain's out for protecting you. It reminds me kind of the story of, I loved, you know, Greek mythology and there's one with Oedipus Rex and um, King Laius, I think his name is, he leaves his son Oedipus to die because there's this prophecy, right? There's always a prophecy that your son's going to come and kill you and then marry your wife, which is his mother, right? There's always these kind of stories. So they send off the baby and the baby's left to die. But guess what? The king and queen of Corinth save him. They find this baby and they're having problems having babies themselves. So they take him in and they're like, oh, just a gift from God, right? And so Oedipus it grows up believing that these are his real parents. And, and, and he hears this prophecy that he is going to kill his father and marry his mother. And so he is mortified. And so he leaves 
Corinth, right? He's like, oh my gosh, this can't happen. Everybody leaves, believes these prophecies, right? So he leaves. So who does he meet once he leaves Corinth? Laius, his real dad, not knowing that he's his dad, who he kills. And then guess what? He wins the throne and he marries his mother. So in trying so hard to avoid all of these prophecies, they brought all of them to fruition. And it kind of runs, you know, with kids, I'll talk about Kung Fu Panda, where there's this prophecy that the really mean tiger guy is going to escape. And so everybody panics. And the little koala bear thing, I don't know what he is, he, he goes and he sends the duck, go tell the rhinoceroses, you know, at the prison that the tiger is going to escape, make sure they lock down, make sure he doesn't escape. But the duck in going to send the message, one of his feathers falls down into the tiger's cage. And guess what? The tiger gets to unlock himself. So by panicking and by trying to prevent that from happening, they make it happen. And so as soon as we start to cling to some outcome like happiness, that clinging is the cause of the problem in the first place. Or as soon as we try to run away from the pain and try to push it out, it just grows and intensifies, kind of like that mosquito itch you're trying to avoid, but it just becomes so overwhelming. You just got to avoid it. So it's always going to come back and bite us in the butt. So we really have to understand that our brain is not set up to be happy. Again, not for doom and gloom and, and to set in those, you know, in previous episodes I talked about, don't talk about genetics and how it's ingrained. That's not, you know, the point of this, but it's just be to be able to say, of course you feel that way. We're normalizing it so that kids and teens and adults too don't think that there's something wrong with me. Why am I always like this? You're always like this because you are a human being, right? Because the harder we try to push for happiness and wonder about what the heck is wrong with us, you know, it's just going to be hard at the end of the day. So just remember that telling yourself or your kids or parents telling your kids or your class, whatever kids that you're working with or yourself, just telling them to be happy, don't worry about it. That's really counterproductive because we're making them more vulnerable to those paradoxical effects of our brain. We need to say, of course you are. That makes sense. And this tells me that you are a really studious student because you are worried about how you're going to be doing on your test. Or you are such a loyal friend because you're really worried about, you know, your best friend still liking you after that fight that you had. Of course, that makes sense. And that tells me a lot about the kind of person you are. It wouldn't be a big deal if we didn't worry about things, if we didn't stress about things. So I think that that's really important for us to, you know, at the end of the day to think about and it just helps normalize. And when we can normalize, we can get out of that, you know, we get sucked into anxiety and then we do anxiety. And it's just a big vicious cycle. So if we can get out of that, we're still going to feel it. We're still going to be worried and have those thoughts and feel all the things in our body, but we can respond a little bit differently and we don't have to get sucked up in it. So thank you for joining me today and I will see you next time. Thank you.